0: Welcome to New Mexico People, Places and Ideas. I'm Steven Spitz. New Mexico is near the bottom when it comes to K-212 outcomes and kindergarten readiness. Constitutional Amendment Number One, up for a vote November 8th, is intended to remedy this. It would distribute one and one quarter percent of New Mexico's $25 billion permanent school fund to K-212 schools and early childhood education. Would this help children to succeed? To answer that question, we're going to listen back to an interview I did with Paul Tuff, who followed up How Children Succeed with his book, Helping Children Succeed. Hope you enjoy the show. Paul Tuff, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Paul, this is your third book about poverty and education. Why this book? Well,
1: this book really has its roots in my last book, How Children Succeed. Um, and that book was about the our growing understanding of the importance of this set of personal qualities, skills, sometimes called non-cognitive skills, sometimes called character strengths, things like um, grit and curiosity, conscientiousness and self-control. And after I finished that book, um, I, I, you know, would go around and Talk about it to different audiences and talk to lots of teachers and uh, people who are working directly with kids. And the question that I heard from a lot of them was well, this is all very interesting, but now that we know this, what do we do? How do we actually help? Um, children in this non-cognitive realm, and especially kids who are growing up in difficult circumstances. And so, my goal for this new book, "Helping Children Succeed," was to write something more practical, real strategies that um, teachers, or pediatricians, or mentors, or parents can use to try to help their kids uh, do better in this non-cognitive realm.
0: So, before we get to those strategies, I'd like to just take a step back and and just uh, ask you about a couple things from how children succeed in in that book kind of built on the work of uh, James Heckman, a Nobel Prize-winning economist. And I think you start the book with a discussion of, of a comparison that really opened his eyes between uh, kids who have a high school degree and kids who get, just get a GED and how they fared later in life. And I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about that, a study sure. by Heckman.
1: Sure. So yeah, the, the, this this GED study I think was the thing that that started Heckman on this road to try to understand non-cognitive skills. And similarly, when he told me about it, um, it, it did the same thing for me. It just sort of made me think like it, this. It's going an on amazing.
0: It's an amazing study.
1: <laughs> right. So. You know, I think a lot of us believe uh, what I call in the book the cognitive hypothesis—that the thing that's that the the marker of success is your IQ. You know, your cognitive skills. That's how our that's how our standardized tests work. We 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 judge kids on those skills, and then we um, we think that that's going to tell us who's going to succeed. And so um, the GED is really uh, a kind of a perfect test of that because you can get a GED, uh, the equivalent of a high school diploma, if you just pass a cognitive skills test, reading. And Math and and knowledge test. Um, And so uh, Heckman looked at the data on young people who had a GED versus young people who had a high school diploma. And he found that actually the kids with the GEDs were slightly smarter than the kids with the high school diplomas. They tended to do a little bit better on these tests of um, straight sort of cognitive skills. But then when he looked at their outcomes in life, how they were doing uh, in terms of their wages, their, um, you know, chance of getting in trouble with the law, all sorts of measures of, of life success in sort of one's mid-20s, the people who had uh, the GEDs were doing much worse um, on all kinds of measures. And so this was a challenge to the idea that it's cognitive skills that, that determine your success. And what Heckman um, realized or decided was that the the process of getting a high school diploma um, involves certain skills that go beyond just cognitive skills. It's the ability to, you know, just like hang in there and stick with a project all the way through and um, deal with all of the hassles that, that high school uh, getting a high school diploma include. Um, and that what he concluded was that these skills uh, were important, that somehow this was something we weren't measuring but was very important, and so then that, that set him on his path to try to figure out exactly what those skills were, uh, how we could measure them, and how we could help develop
0: them in children. so So one other study from from how children succeed that, that really uh, that I want to highlight, and that's the one by Michael Meany and the Rats, where he compared uh, rat pups that get so-called high licking and grooming with those that that don't and what happens to, and, and what that comparison is about. And I wonder if you could just tell us just a little bit about that.
1: Sure, a totally fascinating study to me. So uh, Meany was a neuroscientist with his whole lab full of rats, um, and it, in each case it was a mother who would be living in these little cages with a few of their babies known as pups. And he noticed that some of the mother rats did a lot of this
0: sort of soothing ritual called licking and grooming, and others didn't. Yeah, this is and when the rats were put back in the cage, and they were exactly. upset, right?
1: Especially, when, especially when the when the baby rats were were scared, and they yeah. were scared when you know a lab assistant would pick them up and then and you know weigh them or measure them or something, and then put them back in the cage. And at that moment, the rats, the baby rats, would be trembling and nervous, and uh, and some of these mother rats would soothe them with this with this licking and grooming, and others would not. And so uh, Meany wanted to try to figure out what the long-term effect of licking and grooming might be. So he devised this experiment where he divided the mother rats into two categories, the high-licking and grooming mother rats and the low-licking and grooming mother rats. Each rat raised her pups just for the first week or two of life, and then uh, the scientists separated the pups from their mothers. The pups grew to adulthood. And then they gave these new adult rats a whole series of tests. And the rats who had received a lot of licking and grooming as pups did better on all kinds of tests. They were braver. They were more curious. They did better at mazes. Uh, they were healthier. They lived longer. When they looked at the brain, their brains, the, the, the rat's brains under a microscope, they could see differences in the size and shape of certain parts of the brain. And it all came back to this one little um, uh, ritual that certain mother rats did just in the first week or two of life. And so Meany and many others have tried to figure out what the human equivalent uh, of that is, and we don't have um, you know, quite as solid research. But uh, what, what they suggest is that there's something in um, uh, the kind of behaviors in, in human parents that promote what's called a secure attachment, um, just sort of a warm, uh, attentive, responsive relationship between parent and child that seem to have a similar effect on the, the, the kind of biology of human babies that licking and grooming has on the biology of rat babies.
0: And, and one of the things you talk about it in How Children Succeed is, is a lot of studies about how securely attached children go on in life to... To succeed much better than a children who aren't securely attached, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, before I before I did this research, I sort of, sort of thought like attachment was this kind of vague thing, like oh, it's kind of good to be feel attached to your parents. Um, but the science on attachment is really powerful. So atta- they're able to measure how attached, how connected, how attuned a parent and child are at age uh, at age one at twelve months, um, and and those measurements of whether whether um, Uh, a baby feels sort of secure and stable and confident in the the love and connection and and security of that parent, uh, goes on to predict all kinds of success in childhood and beyond. So um, you can look at that uh, 12-month secure attachment rating, and it predicts, you know, which kids are going to succeed in preschool, which kids are going to um, get along with peers better in elementary school, even which students are going to graduate from high school. So much of that all comes back to the stuff that happens in that first year of life, and and, and not just the sort of cognitive development that happens in that first year of life, but the emotional, psychological development, which for babies is all about their relationship to their parents.
0: So So that's true for all kids both uh kids who grow up in wealthy families and kids who grow up in poor families but really the emphasis of helping children succeed is on kids growing up growing up in poverty and so my question is really why that emphasis there is uh, a real correlation between uh, family income and
1: the likelihood of having that kind of chaotic and unstable childhood that uh, that creates such disadvantage in children's development and it's also true that you know well-off families if their kids don't have the right kind of emotional psychological support they can, you know, they can buy support. You know, they can they can invest in things like tutors and therapists and uh, all sorts of help later on in life that that sort of cushion that blow. Um, again, there's still lots of you know well off kids who who end up uh, really suffering, um, but you know low income kids who are growing up in in poverty, if they don't have that kind of warm, supportive, um, stable beginning at home and in their community, um, they often enter school really behind and really disadvantaged, and a lot of schools don't have the right kind of resources to help those kids succeed. So that was the phenomenon, the problem that I really wanted to take on in this new book, and I wanted to try to figure out um, ways to address that both uh, outside of school, in the home and in the community, and in the classroom as well.
0: If you've just joined us, this is New Mexico People, Places, and Ideas, and I'm Stephen Spitz. My guest today is Paul Tuff, author of three books, on how children succeed we're listening back to this interview because of the upcoming vote on november 8th on constitutional amendment number one that amendment would increase funding for k-12 schools and early childhood programs now back to the show so so one thing i, re- I really don't understand uh, back on uh, something you said earlier is why you know you've said that a nurturing positive relationship between parents and children you know leads to these non cognitive uh skills uh but why is that true and why is it not true if if the, if, if children don't get that what's the what's the relationship that explains that
1: well um there, there's actually some research that I write about in this new uh, book that, that I, I wasn't aware of in my last book that makes a lot of sense to me. And it's about, um, it's on a, on a sort of neurological level, it's about the stress response system. So I think we tend to think, uh, you know, of of early childhood as just this this phenomenon of, of either getting the right stuff or not getting the right stuff that is, so if you get the right amount of you know love and books and reading practice and good night moon time um, you're going to be fine and if you don't you're you're somehow deprived and, and what these, um, uh, there's this one paper I mentioned in the book by these two psychologists, Sabel Raver and Clancy Blair. And and what they suggest, the framework that they suggest is that it's much more about sort of evolutionary um, uh, a- adaptation. And that when, uh, that, that the stress response system within each of us is kind of like a thermostat for adversity. And in early childhood, it is looking around uh, a child's environment looking for clues about what life is going to be like and when it gets uh, the cues that life is going to be hard and unstable and chaotic when a child is living in that kind of environment, it prepares for trouble, and and you can see all of these physiological changes in kids. Everything from blood pressure going up to the immune system kicking in to uh, the sort of fight or flight mechanism being triggered, and we now understand that that has all kinds of effects, both on the body and on the brain, on the development of these. Um, uh, mental skills called executive functions, on the ability, a child's ability to regulate their emotions and their thoughts. Um, and so, you know, in a, in a dangerous environment, these adaptations make sense. Like if you're surrounded by trouble and threat, it is a good idea to have a highly uh, fired up fight or flight response to always be looking for trouble. But when these kids go to school, those adaptations don't make sense at all. And so I think there are a lot of kids who grow up in, in real adversity early on who get to kindergarten and they're you know looking for trouble, ready for confrontations, anxious, find it hard to concentrate, hyper-aware of, of distractions. And that makes it really hard to learn your letters and your numbers, to get along with other kids, to follow directions. Um, and right now, we don't have a mechanism within our schools to help kids who have had those sorts of adaptations. We tend to just look at them as behavior problems and think that the right way to deal with them is to, you know, punish them or reward them and try and change their behavior that way. But punishments and rewards, I think, given the, the extent of, the, of that sort of um, biological adaptation, you know, just, just like getting a kid to sit in the corner is not going to help him or her develop the kind of uh, self-reflection and self-control uh, and self-regulation that, that is really needed to succeed and survive at
0: school. Um, be, be, before I ask you more about that, I'd just like to to ask about. You said the book was about practical strategies, and I'm wondering if if you found that there were interventions. You you, you said that the stress response system can be very destructive, and you also said that this nurturing relationship can be very positive. It's what builds these cognitive skills. Have you, seen, have you seen or read about interventions that actually promote these non-cognitive skills, uh, even in stressful situations?
1: Yes. So there are a few. There's some that I write about in, in early childhood and some that I write about later in, in K-12 classrooms. Um, in early childhood, I think the most effective ones are ones that work directly with parents, uh, beginning in children's earliest years when, when they're still babies. Um, and And try to promote it the secure attachment um, and one of the things that 's really um, encouraging about this research is that it 's not that complicated you know that if Like there are a lot of parents, especially parents uh, living in poverty, are just stressed out. uh, Don't you know? Are like resentful of the fact that their parents. I mean, as we all are sometimes. um, You know, don't feel like they're good parents, um, and don't have a lot of resources to help them through those crisis moments. And so there are these home visiting programs that that will send a home visitor. You know, just like an hour a week into the home uh, of one of those stressed out parents. And the, one, the two programs that I've uh, observed and wrote about in, in Helping Children Succeed that I think are especially effective, they don't like come in with a, with a bunch of, like, rules and lists and here are the five things you should do to build your child's brain. Instead, the home visitor just observes the parent interacting with her uh, child. And at the moments where she's doing things that are especially uh, likely to encourage that uh, kind of warm connection between parent and child, they give positive feedback. They say, yep, look what you're doing right there. It's great. That's really helping her. You're connecting with her. You're looking in her eyes. You're uh, having these sort of serve and return back and forth uh, interactions with her and that does two things. I mean, that positive reinforcement just encourages the parents to do more of it, but it also makes them feel good about being parents and, uh, and, uh, and about their own abilities, and I think that that message is a big part of why these programs work. They don't, it doesn't feel like someone from the outside coming in and lecturing and saying, oh, you're doing everything wrong, start again. It's saying, you know what to do, you just need to do a little bit more of it. Um, and these programs have really powerful um, results uh, not only do they even though you know the intervention is entirely with the parents, kids whose parents are enrolled in these programs, uh, it changes their behavior, it changes their success in school, and most remarkably, it even changes their um, biology. Uh, you can see differences in the levels of certain stress hormones in kids once their parents go
0: through this program so so when you when you say that are, are these controlled sort of studies with a con- with a control group where you're comparing kids who get this with kids who don't get this
1: yeah they are so this one the, the, the one that I think is best studied uh, there, there are two programs like this that are, are kind of working in parallel one from the University of Oregon and one from the University of Delaware uh, and I write specifically about a couple of studies from the one at the University of Delaware um, that uh, yeah did this big randomized controlled study uh, where Some parents went through this program called ABC and others um, just did sort of more standard uh, home visiting. And this attachment-based home visiting made this huge difference, again, not just on kids' behavior, but on their uh, neurobiology, on, on their
0: stress hormones. If you've just joined us, this is New Mexico People, Places, and Ideas, and I'm Stephen Spitz. My guest today is Paul Tuff, author of three books on how children succeed. We're listening back to this interview because of the upcoming vote on November eighth on constitutional amendment number one, that amendment would increase funding for K through twelve schools and early childhood programs. Now back to the show. So, so my my uh, follow up question, Paul, is: Are these programs are they worth the investment? Like for example, here in New Mexico, it costs about four thousand dollars per kid per year to have a home you know, to have home visiting once a week. Um, are, are, is that the kind of investment that actually pays off for society and the state, or, uh, you know, is it not worth it?
1: Uh, it's absolutely worth it. I mean, a, it's expensive. There's no question about it. If we want to uh, really make a difference in the lives of uh, kid, the the kids who are growing up in the most disadvantage, we do have to spend yeah a few thousand dollars per kid per year early on, but it is you know like the best investments. It's an investment early on that pays off later, um, and it pays off not only in terms of that that family's well being and that child's success in school, it also pays off financially, economically, you know, because of the money that's saved down the road in um, special education, in, you know, juvenile justice, in welfare payments and incarceration down the road. This is really a program that that can change uh, a child from being uh, an adult who is very much dependent uh, on on society to being uh, an adult who's very much a contributor to society. And that has sort of a, a huge intangible um, payoff for the public as a whole, but it also has a very measurable payoff for the public as a whole. It does save money over the long term. You know, we don't, uh, when we think about policies, we often find it difficult to think long term and to think like, here's an investment that might pay off 20 years from now. Um, but, you know, that that is the reality of, of investing in education and child development. Um, you know, you're not going to make a lot of money off three-year-olds. <laughs> but when that three-year-old, you know, is is a 25 year old contributing to society um you're you're benefiting
0: so are these rigorously analyzed uh economic studies or i mean you know you would assume that the people who run these programs have sort of a bias toward wanting wanting to show the programs work so you know when when I you mean, when you look at them do do they seem like on the level to you
1: you, they do, they do. I mean, I think you know. So, you, you mentioned uh, James Heckman, this Nobel Prize-winning economist, and he has done some of the best uh, and, and most persuasive, to me at least, economic analysis of the, of the value of early childhood investments, and especially this, this kind of early childhood investment that works uh, to support families. Um, in the early years of a child's life, um, for me, you know, I, I'm I'm persuaded by the by the economics, but in a in a broader way, I'm kind of persuaded by the by the science even more. Um, you know, when you see the the effect on a child's development, and then when you you know visit a high school and you see the difference between you know high school students who are engaged and connected and sort of feel good about being in school every day, and those ones who aren't and don't feel that way. Um, you can see the connection between what happens in early childhood and what's happening in high school, and and, and there's just a huge difference in, in what those children's uh, prospects are. Um, so on, on that level as well, uh, yeah. There's the obviously sort of a, a analysis,
0: public good. Sense. There's obviously a public good aside from the economics of it, but you, but you're suggesting the state itself benefits from these investments.
1: Yeah, that's definitely what Heckman's uh, research suggests, and it's also to me what the science says
0: all right, so you, you've been saying uh earlier in the show that uh that your book covers areas other than early childhood and and one of the things that that really fascinated me to tell you the truth was you you know I read your first book too uh, which was about uh, Jeff Canada and the harlem children's Zone right whatever and, it takes yeah whatever it takes and and in that book there's there's such an emphasis on achievement test scores and you seem in helping children succeed to really move away from advocating that as being the fundamental uh thing that we look for in in both teachers and in students you seem to you seem to be suggesting that an entirely different uh classroom environment uh ought to obtain in in the classroom
1: yes yeah, so um <laughs> you're you're absolutely right so in that in my first book whatever it takes uh, it was about this, this educator Jeffrey Canada, who ran an organization called the Harlem Children's Zone, um, and he is and was, a, I think, a really um, uh, brilliant and um, innovative educator. But you're right; he, at the time, he he believed, I think, as a lot of people did, and as a fair number still do, that the the best thing for kids who uh, kids in general, and especially kids who are growing up in poverty, is to do everything you can to raise their test scores in school. That that is going to be that's where the gap is that matters, and that's where kids. Uh, that that's what can, can get kids uh, onto a level playing field. Um, and you know, I, so so I've really yeah absolutely come to question that intense focus on test scores. And that is not to say that I don't think that, that you know knowledge and cognitive skill is important. I think it's really important that kids you know know how to read and do math and and learn all of the um, stuff that we want them to learn in school. But I think that what a lot of educators have found over the last 10 years during the No Child Left Behind era is that um, running schools based on a narrow focus on test scores alone can actually have a, a really detrimental effect on kids' um, education, uh, and certainly on their psychology and their well-being, that, that we it's led a lot of schools to narrow their curriculum and narrow their focus. I think that certainly happened for, for Jeff and the Harlem Children's Zone, um, and especially for kids who are growing up in difficult circumstances, that, that sort of uh, amplifies their disadvantage. And in contrast, when, as I read about in Helping Children Succeed, when we're able to create in the classroom environments that really make kids feel a sense of uh, connection um, and and relatedness to their teachers and their peers, but also a sense of, like, challenge and possibility in the work that they're doing, when we give them work that is, you know, challenging and uh, rigorous and meaningful, um, they... Tend to feel much better about going to school. They're more motivated. They work harder, even if they're, you know, coming from really difficult backgrounds. Uh, and as a result, they do better in the, in those sort of pure cognitive, um, straight up academic kind of ways. They learn more math. They learn more history. Uh, but they learn it because they're actually, like, excited about it and because it's, it's fun and it's engaging and it's challenging. Um, all the things that, you know, provide the deepest motivation for, for all people. Um, and, and so you get both. You know, it doesn't have to, it, there doesn't have to be a trade off. It's not like we have to choose between uh, our, our children's you know, mental well-being and their academic success. If we focus on their mental well-being and their psychological uh, relationship with school, they're going to do better in all of those, you know, rigorous academic ways.
0: So, so but how do we measure, te- you know, t- teacher or student success in achieving these goals and developing these so-called non-cognitive skills I and mean, other than by achievement test scores?
1: Well, it's a challenge, no question about it, um, and uh, and it's it's something you know. There, there's a big push across the country to try to figure out, like, how do we measure, you know, these these non-cognitive qualities like perseverance and self-control and grit. Um, and one of the things that I read about in, in Helping Children Succeed is this experiment by uh, an economist at Northwestern University named Carabo Jackson, who, who found this kind of innovative way to measure uh, those skills. Because the problem is we don't have a good, you know, there's no good test we can give someone for perseverance or for grit or for self-control. Um, but what he does is measures the, the kind of, you know, practical facts of a student's life that reflect their motivation, their connection, things like their uh, attendance, their um, behavior record, how likely they are to be suspended, uh, their GPA, uh, which is a reflection, you know, not just of IQ, but also of how hard you work, um, and their likelihood of of sort of on-time grade progression. And he did this huge study in North Carolina where he discovered that there were certain teachers who were particularly good at raising their students' test scores, and then there were other teachers who were particularly good at improving their uh, score, their 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 numbers on all of these other factors. So if you were in the, the classroom of one of these teachers, you were more likely to want to show up every day, more likely to want to behave well in class, and more likely to want to work hard on your schoolwork, and that. You that, so you can call that developing non-cognitive skills, or you can just say, like, that's what we want for students. Um, and so to me, like, trying to parse out and measure specifically, like, how much grit or self-control any one student has is not a particularly productive uh, angle. But looking at how kids behave, how motivated they are, how likely they are to work hard, um, how, much, how much effort they put in at school – that's the stuff that I think really matters for both students and uh, for teachers. And, and again, I think it does pay off down the road on those more um, uh, uh, kind of narrow cognitive skills as well. Once, If you're motivated and connected to your schoolwork, you're going to do better at math and better at reading and better at history as well.
0: We're going to have to leave it there. I would like to thank today's guest, Paul Tuff, author of How Children Succeed and Helping Children Succeed. Thanks also to my producers, Jefferson White, Elias Henley, and Tristan Klum. The executive producer of this show is Lynn Shubecki, and my name is Stephen Spitz. Podcasts of this show are available wherever you get podcasts. Search Stephen Spitz. Archives of past shows are at stephenspitz.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.